Welcome to episode 217 of The Recovery Show. This episode is brought to you by Celia and Lucy. They used the donation button on our website. Thank you, Celia and Lucy, for your generous contributions. This episode is for you. We are friends and family members of alcoholics and addicts who have found a path to serenity and happiness. We who live or have lived with the seemingly hopeless problem of addiction understand as perhaps few others can. So much depends on our own attitudes, and we believe that changed attitudes can aid recovery. Before we begin, we would like to state that though we at The Recovery Show may be in a 12-step program, we represent ourselves rather than the program. During this show, we will share our own experiences. The opinions expressed here are strictly those of the person who gave them. Take what you like and leave the rest. My name is Spencer, and today's episode is the open talk that I gave about a week ago. I hope that you find something in it that speaks to you. Hit the record button. Let's do that. Okay, so what what was it like? What happened and what is it like now? And I used to start this talk on the day that I realized that I needed help. That was the beginning of my story, I thought. But in fact, my Al-Anon story starts a lot earlier than that. It starts in childhood when I learned how to be a good codependent. I learned that I couldn't be happy unless everybody around me was happy already. I learned that it was my job to rescue and fix whatever problems you had. I learned this by example, from my parents, uh, who, you know, were doing the best they could with what they had. Uh, And I carried that forward. I carried that into college, where if a friend of mine had a problem, my first thought was, how do I fix this for you? When the girl that I was dating, maybe girlfriend, came back from a holiday and told me she had been date raped, my first thought was, how can I make this better? How can I fix this for you? And not understanding that I probably couldn't fix it and it really wasn't mine to fix. So if I go through life trying to fix everybody else's problems, at least two things happen. One is it doesn't work and I get frustrated. The second is that I tend to ignore my problems. I tend to ignore the things that I actually can do something about because I'm so busy trying to do something about things I can't do anything about. So we'll fast forward about 20 some odd years when I started to realize that I thought my wife was drinking too much. So then I became obsessed with how to fix it. How to get her to drink normally. That was all I wanted. I just wanted her to drink normally. And no matter what I did, that didn't happen. No matter what I did, that didn't happen. In fact, it continued to get worse. She recognized that there was a problem and started trying to do things about it. And so I got pulled into the uh, recovery industry, we might call it. Uh, I started to attend friends and family days at various outpatient programs. And I started to hear about codependency. I remember going to a friends and family morning and they played a video based on, I think, Melody Beattie's work. I'm not sure. I just didn't connect to what was going on there. I didn't understand how that had anything to do with me. I did connect with things like the description of children's roles in alcoholic families and saw how that was playing out with my children and started to get more worried and more obsessed with got to fix it. And it kept not working. It kept not getting fixed. My wife applied the term alcoholic to herself long before I was willing to admit that. I didn't like that word. My vision of alcoholic was not somebody who looked like her. My vision of alcoholic, I don't know exactly what my vision of alcoholic was, but she wasn't one. Uh, There was a lot of shame associated with that word. There was a lot of shame associated with 
um, the behavior. And so I started to isolate. I started to stop. We stopped having people over to our house. We stopped going to parties. And I felt like I couldn't share honestly what was going on in my life with anybody. Not with my friends, not with my family, with nobody. And so I was stuffing, 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 and stuffing. And the way that stuff came out was anger, was rage. I would scream at my children for spilling milk on the table. I would pound the table and scream. And my daughter has told me that her reaction to this was to withdraw mentally, physically. She said, I would go into the other room and I would know that in a little while I would have my daddy back again and it would be okay. Now, this is way after I heard this way after. She's told me this when she was in her 20s, okay? And this behavior was happening when she was below 10. And she actually has said she really doesn't remember very much of her life before 10. Um, I don't know whether the alcoholism and my reaction to the alcoholism has anything to do with that. It might. I can't take responsibility for her problems, but I can take responsibility for my actions. I've heard it said that when you look at an alcoholic family, the non-drinker is always the one who looks sicker in their behavior, and that was certainly true of me. My anger came out on my kids. My anger came out on my coworkers. Uh, it probably came out on the, the drivers around me, but they couldn't tell, so um, that doesn't count. But I got, I got called into the boss's office a number of times at work for angry outbursts, for behavior unbecoming, if you will. And I believe that had I not found recovery, I probably would have been fired because of it. So now we come to the middle of the story, which I used to think was the beginning. The middle of the story has me in a room at a recovery center for another friends and family day. I think this was the first inpatient rehab that she had gone to. And I had been told previously that, hey, you know, like Al-Anon might be something you should check out. And my response to that was, who, me? I'm not the guy with the problem here. I am not the person with the, she's the person with the problem. Okay, she needs to fix her problem and then everything will be fine. And eventually everything was fine, but I was still effed up, insecure, neurotic, and emotional. Fine. So that day, they said, and probably other people had said these words, but the person who was speaking said, you didn't cause it. You can't control it. And you can't cure it. And I heard those words. I understood those words in my heart. And I felt a lifting, a weight coming off of me, like physically lifting, sitting in the chair there, you know, in the, the, the lecture room, that I had been trying to do something that was not mine to do, and that I didn't have to do it, because I couldn't. The other thing that happened that day that I remember is picking up a little flyer, and I don't know if there's any back there on the table. We should probably have some for these talks, but it has 20 questions on it. It's headed something like, uh, are you affected by another person's drinking? It's a little, you know, third of a sheet of paper kind of thing. And I looked at those questions and I answered yes to 16 out of the 20. You know, have you ever done this? Have you ever felt that? There was another one that I wasn't sure about. And there were three that I was pretty sure I'd never happened like we'd never had, the, I'd never had to call the police to our house, you know. 16 out of 20. And then at the bottom of the sheet, it says, if you answered yes to one or more of the above questions, Al-Anon may be for you. 
And you know, I have a degree in mathematics and I realize that 16 is a lot bigger than one. <laughs> it's good for something. So that afternoon as I was leaving, I called a friend who I knew was in what we often refer to as the other program, which is to say Alcoholics Anonymous. I called him up because he was the only person I knew that might be connected with something that might connect to Al-Anon. And I called him up and I said, hey, do you know anything about Al-Anon? And he said, yeah. He said, there's, there's a great meeting. It's right around the corner from my house. It's tonight. Would you like me to take you and introduce you to somebody there? And I said, I'll have to think about it. Which I did for about 30 seconds and hit the redial button on the phone as I'm heading down US 23 at 70 miles an hour. And I said, yes, please. So that night I went to my first Al-Anon meeting, and I didn't know what to expect, but I knew that, I knew that my life was, I'll use the word unmanageable here, I don't know if I would have applied that word or understood that word at the time, but that's what it was, it was unmanageable. And if I couldn't fix my wife, I needed to do something for me, I guess. So I went to that meeting, and I, I sat near the door so I could run out if I, you know, needed to. And people talked, and I cried. And at the end of the meeting, I knew that I was no longer alone in my problem. I knew that there was at least one room full of people. I think this was the Wednesday night meeting at Zion Church. If any of you have been there, it's a fairly large meeting it had, I think, about 20 or 25 people when I started going there. It was a lot of people who understood, who understood what was going on in my house, who understood what was going on in my family, who understood how I was feeling and didn't judge me for it. And if that's the only thing that I got from my first meeting, that was huge. That was that was so huge, because I had been alone for so long. So I thought, well, I'll come back. Come back the next week. You know, people offered me their phone numbers, said, call me. I didn't. I can't impose on you, right? But I come back, I kept coming back, and I kept crying, and, and I kept hearing people talk, and I heard people talk about horrible situations, and I heard people talk about I guess getting better. I don't know. I mean, you know, I, what I, at the beginning, I identified with the people who were like still in the alcoholic situation and how bad it was. You know, the person whose alcoholic friend relative, I don't remember, had died and they didn't find him for a week or something and, you know, just horrible shit like that. Um, and what I remember from that story was, he said, and it didn't make anything better. The alcoholic was gone, but it didn't make anything better. Like, hmm, that's, Interesting. That's unexpected. So I wanted to get better, you know? I wanted to find that serenity that we promise in the opening. I wanted to understand how the hell I could find contentment and even happiness, whether the alcoholic is still drinking or not. Because that just seemed so improbable. That just seemed so unlikely. How the heck could that happen? So how do I do that? How do I do that? Well, I listened, and people started talking about the 12 steps, and oh my God, those 12 steps looked so scary. I mean, I'd already really in my heart taken step one. I, I had admitted that I was powerless. I couldn't c control it. I couldn't cure it, and that my life was unmanageable. It took me another six months to admit it in my head. Um, and I kept trying to take it back, and we'll get to that in a moment. So I started listening, and people are saying, well, you know, read the, come to meetings, read the literature, get a sponsor, work the steps. I'm like, okay, well, if this is what I'm supposed to do, I guess this is what I'll try. So I did that. I got a sponsor. I started working the steps. I actually started working the steps with a, a small group of, I think it was eight people. We met every week for two years to, to get our way through the 12 steps, and that was a really amazing and powerful experience. And, and I think that was really 
the thing that was most influential on my recovery, but also hearing and sharing other people's experience. This is the sort of not understandable exactly power of these 12-step recovery programs is in sharing our own experience and sharing other people's experience, we all get better. You know, I think it says in the big book somewhere that the, the core of AA recovery is one alcoholic working with another, and the core of Al-Anon recovery is one Al-Anon working with another or maybe a group of others. We can't do it alone, and the first word of the steps is we, and that we is implied in all 12 steps. It's just not there as a word. It is not a program that works by a single person sitting. I, I heard somebody say once, you know, we say, we don't say it works if you read it. We say it works if you work it. And reading is part of working it. So a little bit about what was happening outside of my head. My wife went to uh, a residential treatment program on the other side of the state for about four months. And I was driving across the state once a week for Friends and Family Day. I had two preteen children at home. I was a single father. My life was easier than it was when she was in the house. And that really highlighted for me that unmanageability, highlighted for me how strongly my life experience had been affected by her drinking. And she came back from that, and she was sober, and everything was wonderful. And I don't know if you've heard the expression pink cloud. I think it's more used in the AA program, but we were on that pink cloud. Everything was great. I remember during that time going with her to a counselor meeting, and you know, the counselor says, well, how are things going? I'm like, ah, it's great. It's wonderful. You know, everything's just perfect. And, and my wife said something like, she said something a little like negative, And I don't remember exactly what she said. Um, and I was like, what do you mean? You know, it's all great. I think it might have been, I think it might have been about a month later. And I had been seeing these, this behavior from her of, she would be sort of sleepy. She'd come home early from work and take a nap. And, and, and one evening, it just became obvious that she was drinking again. And I went upstairs to our bedroom and found bottles in the closet and came back down and accused her. And I said, you need to go back to treatment. And after we... Um, talked about it for a while, mostly me talking, I think. She agreed to go back for a month, and, you know, there was another however many thousand dollars out. And at the end of that month, and this is the way I remember it, she came home on a Friday and drank that night. And that put the nail in my understanding of powerlessness that I could not fix it. It was not my job, and I couldn't do it, and I didn't try again, because I knew. I mean, that was so freaking obvious that I had done the best I could do to get her to stop, and it absolutely did not work. It was so obvious. I kept going to meetings. Um, at that point, when, when she relapsed, I upped my meetings. I think I was going about five or six times a week at that point, finding all the meetings I could find and make it to. And still, you know, two preteen children at home, so having to work around that, too. I kept working with my step study group, working through the steps. And at some point in there, and it was right around that same time when she had relapsed, I went to a meeting, and after the meeting, I was talking with a friend who said, how you doing? And I said, you know what? I was not angry all day. I was not sad 
all day. I was not resentful, frustrated, despairing all day. And those had been my go-to emotions for so long. Those, that was where I lived, was anger, frustration, despair, and resentment. I said, this must be what serenity feels like. So that promise of serenity came true for me that, night, that day. That I could actually live life serenely, even though the alcoholic was still drinking. Wow. I worked those steps to the best of my ability, and I want to talk about the steps a little bit. Got all the way through all 12 cool. You know, she's still drinking at this point. Her life is getting worse. My life is getting better. We're still together. But I had this question, this question in my head when I came into Al-Anon. How can I continue to live this life? Or how can I leave? And neither of those answer, neither of those questions had an answer. I didn't believe I could continue to live that life with active alcoholism. I also could not visualize a life separated. And what I heard in the rooms of Al-Anon was, if you don't know what decision is right for you, and you're not in danger, you don't have to make a decision at that time. And I was like, what? What? That's crazy talk. You know, i got a problem, got to fix it right now. Right now. No, I don't have to fix it right now. I can wait. I can wait until I know what the right answer is. And so I waited. And again, memory is a little fuzzy here, except for the those moments of clarity that, that occurred. And this, this moment, I believe, was about two years in. I was home. My wife was lying on the bed, asleep, passed out, one of those things. And I looked at her, and this voice in my head said, there lies the person that you love, the person that you want to spend your life with. And she is in the grips of a horrible disease that makes her act in ways you detest. But she is still in there. The person you love is still in there. I don't know. You know, we can call it my subconscious. We can call it God. It doesn't really matter. It was not something that came from rational thought. It was something that came. And this is, this is what I believe we're talking about in say, step three, where it says we turn our will and lives over the care of God as we understand God, or in step 11, where we try to improve our conscious contact with our higher power through prayer and meditation. In my head, that was conscious contact with my higher power telling me that I could stay, that I could live that way, because I was. And I wasn't in that place of rage, despair, and frustration anymore. I was in a place where I found times of serenity. I found times of beauty and gratitude. And they were more and more frequent. And so that was the moment when I was able to make that decision that I had been not making for two years and say, yes, I will stay because I can. Um, And during that time, she had been asking, and I don't know if any of you in this program who are you know, living with an active alcoholic in relationship with an active alcoholic, she had been asking me, are, are those Al-Anon people telling you to leave me? Okay, maybe you've heard that question yourself. Maybe you've asked that question. I don't know. And I would always say no. You, know, you, were, not telling me to, you were not telling me what to do. As much as I might have wanted you to tell me what to do, you weren't telling me what to do. And, and I learned that. Because my answer is not your answer, and your answer is not my answer. I have to find my own answer. And then she would say, well, are you going to? And I would answer honestly. I would say, I don't know. Which was 
You know, not the answer she was looking for, but it was the only answer I could give. So the, to finish out the, the, the alcoholism story and get into what it's like now, she did continue to drink for a, a couple more years. I don't know. It was like three and a half years after I came into the program. She found sobriety through herself, through hitting her own bottom that I know was nothing I did. And I'm grateful it was nothing I did because I have heard that story over and over and over again from alcoholics of trying to get sober for somebody else and not succeeding and recognizing that. And this is in the words of the alcoholics whose stories I've heard, recognizing that they had to get sober for themselves. That was the only way they were going to succeed in sobriety was to get sober for themselves. That was also a big part of my recovery was listening to those stories. I think I probably went to the Saturday night St. Joe's open talk at least a hundred times. And I heard, I heard a hundred different versions of the same story. I started to understand that alcoholism is a disease, that alcoholism is not a moral failing. It is not a choice. It is inherent somehow in the way that the brains and the chemistry of an alcoholic's body works. And that she wasn't doing it to me. That this disease was doing it to her. And I started to find understanding and compassion, and I think that helped a lot. I also found hope. I found hope in those stories because every single one of those alcoholics was in recovery. Every single one of those alcoholics had found sobriety and was living it. And if it could happen to those people, some of whom who had gone way further down than I was ever hoping she was going to go, had found recovery. So what, what is, why am I still in the program? Well, I'm still in the program because what I recognized over the years of recovery goes back to how I started this talk, which is that Although the third tradition says the only requirement for membership is that there be a problem with alcoholism in a relative or friend, so that qualifies me to be an Al-Anon. And we use this word, qualifies or qualifier, and I don't like that word because I'm the person who actually qualifies me to be here. It's the way that I respond to somebody else's addictive behavior that qualifies me to be here. And when I recognize that, I recognize that this is a lifelong program, just as if I want to keep my body healthy, I can't go to the gym once, or can't go to the gym for a year, or whatever regimen of physical fitness I choose, and then say, okay, I got this fitness thing. I can stop now. That doesn't work. Okay. Similarly, you know, I came in to Al-Anon, I was um, 47 years old. Okay. So maybe in another 47 years, I might be able to retire because I will have undone the first 47 years worth of, of codependent behavior. I don't know. We'll see what happens when I'm, what, 84 or no, 94, if I get there. Knock on wood. So I have to live a life of recovery. It says, again, it says in our literature, it says, uh, Alanon does not promise that sobriety will fix all your problems. And you know what? It didn't. We're still working on. I, I think, you know, we're getting there. We're, we, we, we've been working on how, how to live together in recovery for a while. And I think we're actually, like, getting there. There's still some stuff on my part that I know I need to work on. I, I can't really say from her side. I don't know. Um, but I know there's some stuff on my side that I'm still working on. So these steps, and, and I was hoping to have the poster up, but, you know, we had to switch rooms and the poster's not up, so that's fine. I'll try it. I'll do my best. Step one, I admitted I was powerless. We admitted we were powerless over alcohol, then our lives had become unmanageable. Step one is the only step that mentions alcohol. Okay, that's the beginning of the process is admitting that I can't fix this thing I was trying to fix. And that furthermore, my attempts to fix it had made my life unmanageable. 
From there on out, it's how do I fix it? How do I fix myself? So we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. That sounds kind of like, that's kind of a downer. Like, oh, everything sucks, and it's broken, and I can't do anything about it. Which, thank goodness for the next step, um, because the next step gives us a little bit of hope and a way forward. The next step says, admitted, no. <sighs> All right, I don't have the steps right in front of me, but basically, the, the yeah, there you go. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Came to believe, yes, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Thank you. I, I like to take that apart a little bit. I came. That was what, what I started doing. I came. And, and as I came and as I listened and as I read and I started to come to, I started to wake up. I started to really hear what people were saying. I started to understand, hear what I was reading. And I came to believe that something could help. I didn't know what that something was. I had a whole lot of problem with that three-letter word that starts with G and ends with D. God, in other words. Um, I had problems. I had trouble saying that word for most of my life. I don't really know why. I think it has to do with, well, I'm not going to go there into theology, but I had a lot of trouble with that concept. But First part, it's not hard for me to believe that our power is greater than me. Okay, there's a lot of things that are more powerful than me. That part's easy. Could restore me to sanity. Well, that's harder. But what I saw was that as I came to Al-Anon meetings, that my sanity was coming back. That I, sanity is like health, right? Okay, if you look at the root of the word, it comes from health, okay? I was regaining my spiritual and mental and, to some extent, physical health as I started to come to Al-Anon. And so it wasn't hard at that point for me to say, okay, something, clearly not me, because I'd been trying to do it for, you know, however many years, is helping me regain sanity. So, okay, that's step two. And then we come to the one that when I was first sitting in recovery rooms, and I saw those 12 steps, I said, there's absolutely no way. Made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Well, the the God that I understood was, even if I didn't believe that there was such a God, the God that I understood when I came into this program was the white-haired guy sitting up in the sky judging me. Okay? Why would I turn my will, and my life over to the care of this judge. Because I knew how broken I was. And I knew what this guy, this God must think of that, and why in the heck would that God help me? And so to break through step three required getting that concept out and replacing it with something else. And... and and that took actually a really long time. But what got me through that step was my sponsor saying, this doesn't mean that you're going to do it. This means that you're going to decide to do it when you're ready. Like, and, and meanwhile, fake it until you make it. Okay, Just do the motions, and eventually maybe you'll find yourself in a place where that works, where you, where you actually have done the action that you decided to do. I'm like, maybe, maybe I can do that. And then step four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. You know what my least favorite part of work is? It's that time when I meet with my boss once a year and we go and, and, and we go over all the things that I did. Well, this is the way I visualize it. We go over all the things that I did wrong for the year. Okay. And that's not actually what happens, okay? But that's the way I see it, and I dread it every year. Well, not so much anymore, okay? Because of the experience of what I didn't understand is in step four, as we practice it in the al program, we don't just look at the things that are wrong with us. It's really easy for me to make a list of things that I think are wrong with me. What's a lot harder for me to do still is make a list of things that I think are right with me. But when I make that list, honestly... And, and searchingly, searching and fearless moral inventory, when I make that list, 
I see that, hey, I'm okay. I got some good stuff, and I got some stuff that I need to work on. And notice the non-judgmental language there, okay? I've worked on that one, too. Okay, so having done that, and, and I did that with my, with my study group, and it took us, I think, six months to get all the way through that step four together. But it was a really, it was a, um, a deepening experience, um, an amazing experience, because through the process of doing it with other people, I came to see that I was not uniquely broken. Because I thought I was like, you know, the worst person around. Right? Isn't that true? I compared my insides to other people's outsides, and that gave me a slight glimpse into other people's insides to see, oh, we're all human. We're okay. And then in step five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being, the exact nature of our wrongs. Well, I figured having done step four with the group, I'd already done that. So I kind of just passed right over that one. I had to come back some years later and, and do it again which is the nature of how this program works and why I keep coming, because it often gets compared to peeling an onion. You know, you think you, you, you've, you've got the, the layer of the onion off, and oh my God, right under there, there's another layer, and there's another layer, and there's another layer, and, and I keep finding new layers, and I keep finding new depths. So step five, I'm sorry, says admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being, the exact nature of our wrongs. And like, oh my God, yeah, scary, you're going to judge me if I do that. And when I finally did that step with another person sitting down and saying, here's, here's the list of you know, my wrongs, my failings. That person didn't judge me. That person listened and accepted what I had to give. And, it, and you know, it was really... Um, words fail me at times. I think it has to do with, with losing all the color out of my hair. And I tried to put it back, but it didn't help. Maybe it's the wrong color. I don't know. But uh, it was it was it was such an accepting experience that that um, I don't know why I was so afraid of it for so long. Well, I do know why. But step six, we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. When I first looked at step six, the first time I I, I think the first time I worked it, I thought like, what's what's to do here? Like, okay, I got all this shit that's wrong with me, and I want it gone. Done. Step six. Boom. And what I have come to understand is that it is in step six that I own my failings. I have to own them. They have to become, I have to accept them as part of me. And then, and only then can I, and this is my own personal experience. I can't speak for anybody else. Only then can I be ready for them to be gone, to be removed. Um, and there's some scary stuff here, like, well, if if I let go of my procrastination, what am I going to be? You know, that's been part of me forever. Like, okay, how? what kind of person am I going to be? I mean, that's kind of an obvious one that, like, why would I want to keep it? I don't know. You know, it, it keeps me from having to do stuff that I don't want to do until it's too late to do it. You see, that's that's the, okay, that's the payoff of procrastination, okay? Or being late, just being late in general, that is one that just, like, I was always late for stuff because, well, why? Okay, and this gets back to step four, and this is how I start to use the steps in my life, that why why do I want to be late for things? Because, you know, when you're late for something, then you feel a little bit guilty, you know, the, the receptionist at the dentist's office glares at you or whatever, you know, or, and, and sometimes they're like, you're too late, you're going to have to reschedule. The payoff for me was, well, so... You know, what's underneath that? What, one of the things that's underneath that is, of course, that my time is much more important than your time. Okay? There's a character defect, as we say. But also, I felt, I, I came to understand that I felt that if I got there, say, early for a dentist appointment, since we already said dentist, if I got there early, that five minutes was wasted time that I wasn't doing something productive with. Like, I don't know, playing a video game. All right. Um, <laughs> so I have to come to own it, and I have to come to understand that why I want it gone. And then in step seven, in all humility, says humbly, in all humility, asked God to remove our shortcomings. And this 
this is where, again, the rubber meets the road about the, the God thing, because like, if I don't have a concept of God, how do I ask God to remove things? What I have come to understand personally for myself is I don't have to know what my higher power is. I don't have to be able to describe my higher power. I just have to be able to say, please help me. I give it to the universe or to God or to the spirit of nature, whatever it is. Please help me. Please help me. And that sounds like, okay, you just like say please and then you're done. No, no. For me, what happens is that there's something in my, in my mind, in my spirit that is blocking me from new behavior. And when I say please help me, that block gets taken away. But I can still keep doing the old behavior. But it gives me the ability to start living differently, and I have to practice that. Step eight, made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. I came up with a list of about three or four people the first time I did step eight because I couldn't see that I'd hurt anybody else. On that list was my wife and my children and myself and maybe a couple of coworkers that I thought maybe I'd done something to hurt them. I wasn't sure. Became willing to make amends to them all. I was not willing to make amends to my wife at that point. She was still drinking. And our literature says, well, you can make the list and you can divide it into three parts. The people that you're willing to make amends to right now, the people that you might possibly be willing to make amends to later, and the people that you don't think you'll ever be willing to make amends to. And she was in one of those latter two categories. I couldn't go back and fix the things that I had done to my children. I couldn't go back and undo the yelling and the screaming and the pounding on the table. But what I could do was start to live differently. And I could also go to them and say, I'm sorry, which, you know, I'm sorry is so weak. Just doesn't, like, it doesn't say anything except I, I acknowledge that I did this thing. But then I have to say, and I'm working really hard to not do it anymore. To me, that's where the amends are. The amends are making it right is sort of the literal interpretation of amends. Um, I have to change the way I live in order to honestly make amends. Well, okay, so there's financial amends. You got to pay back whatever, you know, you stole or borrowed and didn't pay back. Um, but, but for most of, most of the harms that I did, I have to live differently going forward. The people that I, apparently, some people at my job found me frightening. And I could kind of understand that when I was an angry person. And some of those people are gone. I don't know where they are now. I can make amends to them by not being that person to the people I work with now. So made direct amends to such people wherever possible. Step eight and nine, just get really intertangled in, in when we start thinking about it. When I'm working with a sponsee on those steps, I, I really try to emphasize that in step eight, we're just making the list. We're not thinking about how we're going to make amends. We're not thinking about if we're going to make amends. We're not thinking about what their response might be if we try to make amends. We're just making the list. Because if we get into that second part, it just... You know, you talk about writer's block or whatever, it, it blocks making the list. If you, and, and when I was doing step four, my sponsor said to me, he said, look, you're just making the inventory. You're not thinking about how you're going to make amends for the wrongs you committed that are in that inventory. Just make the list. Like, oh, okay, okay. I can do that. So I don't have to figure out how to admit to people that I did these things to them in the past that maybe they know about, maybe they don't, who knows. But I felt shame. And then we get into steps 10, 11, and 12, which some people refer to as the living steps, the um, continuous progress steps. Step 10, continue to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. That really encapsulates for me the previous nine steps. So I've heard it, I saw it, I think it was in the AA literature again, that steps one through nine are really working the program. That's how you get to, get to the point of, being able to live in recovery is, is working those, those first nine steps, and that the 10 and 11 and 12 keep you there. So in step 10, continue to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. I did not understand before I was doing it how freeing this is. That when I make a mistake, if I step up and say, I did this thing, here are the consequences, and here's what I'm going to do to fix it, I don't have to live with it for the rest of my life. I don't have to, to feel that tension when I see the person 
that is going to blame me for what I did, who doesn't know about it yet, because when they find out, they're just going to, you know, come down on me. I don't have to feel that. I don't have to live that anymore. It is so freeing. Eleven, sought through prayer and meditation to approve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. I'm still working on working this step. I have some practice of prayer and meditation, and my self-judgment says it's not good enough. You need to do better. I'm working on it. The prayer that always works for me is the one we said at the beginning of the meeting, God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. A friend of mine says uh, she takes this as an algorithm. Is this something I cannot change? Well, then I need to accept it. Is this something that I can change? Well, then let's see what I can do about it. I don't know. Well, back to step one. Okay, <laughs> you know, and I don't think I got it quite right. But it's like, yeah, okay, this is something we can work. Okay, if I don't know whether it's something I can change or not, well, then let's let's pray for it or let's you know think about it some more and see if it is. And then this is what I'm doing right now. Step twelve: having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to others and to practice these principles in all our affairs. That's what you do. Every time you come to a meeting, that's what you do. That's what I do. Every time I take a phone call from another Al-Anon member, that's what I do as a sponsor. That's what I do when I stand up here and tell my story, is carrying the message. Spiritual awakening. I got to step 12 in the, I don't think the book's here, but we have this book called Paths to Recovery. It's a study book for the steps. And the first question for step 12 is, have I had a spiritual awakening? I'm like, how do I know? Like, there was no flash of light experience, okay? There was no white light experience, as some people have described it. So I had to think about it. And what I came to understand was that I had woken up in my spirit, that the way I lived my life, the way that I experienced my life, was different now. As a result of working the steps. And, and, and I have seen it said, and maybe in our literature, that this is the only promise in the 12 steps, is that we will have a spiritual awakening if we work it. So I'm probably out of time here. I don't know. Where am I on time? I haven't been keeping track. We're done? I like to talk about how I use the program in other parts of my life, because that has also been really huge to me. And if you'll indulge me for a moment, I'm going to relate one experience. One of my children, when they were at college, they did something that ended up with them in a locked ward in the psych hospital 2,000 miles away. They weren't going to be able to get out without somebody to receive them because they had been suspended from college, were not allowed back on campus, so they had nowhere to go because they were living on campus. So we decided that I needed to fly to where they were uh, to receive them from the ward and to do something. Airlines have this bereavement fair or something. It, it wasn't, it was, that there was a special fare that I could get like a full price ticket for half price with open-ended return the night before I was flying because my kid was in the hospital. And so I went down there, I received them out of the hospital. And the night before I had been sitting in the Wednesday night meeting in that big circle of people crying because I thought I didn't know what to do. Okay, um, Y'all are my support group. Y'all are where I get the strongest experience of my God. And that night I got it because I knew you were there for me, whether you said anything or not, just by receiving my pain. So when I got there, I realized I did know what to do because I was able to provide the things that my child could not do for themselves. 
And the program let me not try to provide for them the things that they could do for themselves. So I provided a place to stay, a place to sleep. I provided transportation. I provided food while my child dealt with getting readmitted to school, proving somehow to the counselor that they were no longer a, self, a, a danger to themselves or others, receiving a restraining order from their ex relationship who had taken out a no contact order, finding a new place to live because they were living right down the hall from their ex. And obviously it's very hard to have no contact when you're sort of living in the same place, figuring out transportation from the new place they were living to, to school. And there's a couple other things that, you know, they had to do for themselves. I, oh, they had to find a psychiatrist because that was part of the condition of being readmitted um, and meet with them. And again, I could provide the transportation. So I was able to do for them what they couldn't do for themselves. And I was only able to do that because what I had learned in this program of Al-Anon, in the, and I think it was the 10 years or something that I had been in Al-Anon before that happened. And at the end of the week, this, when this child went off to college, our relationships would, could be described as, at best as strained. We were all glad that they were 2,000 miles away. At the end of this week that I was there, they gave me a hug. It still gets me. It still gets me. They gave me a hug and they said, I'm so glad you came. Okay. By the grace of this program, I knew how to do that. I knew how to be there for them and to start to repair that relationship that had been broken. I couldn't have done that if I was not in Illinois. I, I know that I couldn't have done that. So with that, I'm just going to close by saying this program has given me my life back. This program has saved my family as a unit. It has saved probably my job. It has saved my sanity. I'd probably still be alive, but man, I don't know what I want to be the person that I would be without this program. I'm a person that I like now most of the time. And that's, that's a miracle. And I'm not a person who tries to fix everybody all the time, and that's also a miracle. So thank you for listening. Thank you for being here. If you'd like to share your story, please contact us. We welcome your thoughts. You can join our conversation. Leave a voicemail or send us an email with your feedback or questions. We'd love to hear from you. In fact, I realized recently that the five-year anniversary of the recovery show is coming up at the beginning of December. I would love to have a five-year anniversary episode composed of all your voices. And so I'm asking for you to call and share about what recovery has meant to you, what you have found in recovery. If you want to tell your story, please do, please do. You can call and leave a voicemail at 734-707-8795. You can call right now if you want, 734-707-8795. You can use the voicemail button on the website to join the conversation from your computer. And if you prefer not to use your voice, you can send email to feedback at therecovery.show. Or just remember to go to therecovery.show slash contact to find all the ways in which you can contribute to our conversation. Got a couple of voicemails and a couple of emails this week. I was share from Kelly reflecting on our willingness episode and how it connects to her current experience. Hi, Spencer. This is Kelly calling from Maryland. I have been listening to your podcast since February 2016, and I'm going to echo what I know you hear all the time, which is that it is a lifeline. And I started listening, um, when I started listening was when I really got serious about my Al-Anon program, and I've been working it hard, and no matter what, um, I rely on these podcasts. So when I can get to meetings, um, I do, and I know how valuable they are, and I've seen when I've had little breaks uh, how important it is to be at the meetings, but the podcasts are awesome for those late nights, for those long drives, and I've been commuting to work for about a year, and it's just been awesome. 
So thank you so much for your commitment. I wait eagerly for that little blue circle to appear in front of the new episode, checking it off. <laughs> um, in fact, this morning when the willingness one appeared, it looked a little like the other one, which said welcome, and then I realized, oh, hooray, it's the new one. I was quite excited. So, um, and the topic of willingness is a great one. I feel like I could call and comment on every topic, but I'm really at a place where I'm realizing or continuing to realize that um, I have to recommit to being willing to work this program, and uh, that happens on a daily basis often. And I am at a place in my relationship where I am becoming willing to see what is, not what I want it to be, not what I hope it will be, not what it's going to be because we were both going to be in recovery at the same time. It is what it is, and what it is is really painful and abusive. And as much as I love um, the man in my life, the father of my youngest child, um, I have to see things for what they are, and I'm finally willing to do that. And it's painful, and it hurts, and I'm sad. I'm really sad, and I'm grieving, but I am also joyful because I know that it's going to be okay no matter what, that, you know, he's going to be in my life in the way that my God sees fit, and I'm going to take care of myself and my son, and I can love my son's dad without accepting abusive behavior, and I can accept him for who he is and love him for who he is right now, but maybe not live with him on a daily basis, and maybe not even be in a relationship with him anymore. We'll see where it goes. Been detaching with love for a long time, but um, I'm actually now at a place where I'm realizing that I need to probably really end this relationship. And I'm right now, I have uh, no contact with him. It's not even been a week, and I don't know if that's going to remain the way things are. We're, we'll see. As I mentioned, we have a young child together, but he's really been uninvolved in his life with any kind of consistency. So perhaps that's God's plan for them. I don't know. But anyway, thanks for letting me share here. Um, thanks. Thank you, Kelly. And and Kelly shared this by recording it on probably her phone and then emailing the file. It, that works really well if you want to leave a longer share because the voicemail number limits you to three minutes and then you have to call back the button on the website limits you to a minute and a half and then you have to do it again. So it might be easier to just hit that voice memo on your phone and then email it to feedback at the recovery.show. Stephanie writes, hi Spencer, I wanted to express appreciation for all of the tools of recovery that this podcast so amply offers. As I have a long commute and travel quite a bit, these episodes help me with my recovery even when I can't make a meeting. I haven't heard them all yet, but I'm listening my way through. Loved the three A's episode, Awareness, Acceptance, Action. That one helped me to realize that I can't simply move forward on a decision once I become aware of an issue, but rather have to humble myself by realizing that I must first slow down and incorporate the tools of the program, including praying, writing down thoughts and feelings, and making outreach calls, when doing what boils down to the real work of acceptance, before moving into action, if at all. So thanks to you and all your co-hosts for this wonderful and helpful program. I have a topic suggestion which may well be on your list already, or there may have already been an episode on something close to this, but scrolling through I didn't at any rate explicitly see the topic of interdependence yet. As I understand it, while codependence implies excessive unhealthy dependence on another person, interdependence refers to healthy necessary dependence on another or a group of others. I recently listened to another great episode, Step 12, where someone mentioned living in the solution. And in that vein, I thought a discussion of interdependence from the perspective of others in recovery might be helpful in painting a picture of what healthy dependence on other, another or others might look like. 
whether that be between spouses among family members, or when that isn't possible due to the presence of an active addiction or dry abstinence, than within a group, even the Al-Anon Recovery Group itself. Many thanks again for all the work that you do in service. Stephanie. You know, that that is a great topic. I hadn't thought of it. I've heard a, a saying, it goes something like, as a child, we're dependent, and then in adolescence, we become independent, sometimes fiercely so, and as adults, we learn to be interdependent, something like that. Anyway, that's what your your email reminded me of, and it, it's a good topic. And no, I haven't done it. An anonymous listener left us a voicemail. Hi, Spencer, I wanted to thank you for your program. I have just recently started Al-Anon. I just completed my seventh meeting, and I did seven meetings in six days because of a um, kind of family crisis. My alcoholic stepson, who's 27 years old, has come to live with my husband and I, and there's uh, it was very sudden. He ran into trouble at Burning Man, so my husband flew to Nevada and picked him up and drove him home, and here we are. So I started going to meetings like crazy just on my own to try to manage all of the feelings I had about this and my conflicts. Going to seven meetings in six days was hugely helpful, uh, but it's a pace I can't maintain. And when I discovered your podcast, I realized I can I can get a little bit more on a healthy, balanced schedule with my own life and still listen to help and wisdom and, and encouragement and and work the steps and and work a program without you know driving everywhere in my car and and kind of avoiding my own daily commitments and and things I've got to get done. So I have listened to two of your podcasts so far. I wanted to tell you which ones: episode eighty-seven on unmanageability and episode two hundred and eleven on kindness and courtesy. Both of them were just extraordinarily helpful wonderful and generous and soothing and packed with tools. So I can't thank you enough. I just want you to know that um, it's incredible to have this resource as far away as my iPhone with my with my ear pods wherever I go when I'm working. And I'm a self-employed artist, so I can listen to a lot of stuff, but I just need to get my work done. And I can listen while I'm walking my dogs, and I can get out of the house and have a meeting without just driving away. And it's not going to it's not going to take the place of my meetings, but I've got to wind down to something more reasonable, like maybe three meetings a week or something. Anyway, we'll see. Um, I feel like I need a meeting almost every other hour, but this has been so helpful. Thank you, thank you, thank you. What a great service. Thank you. Take care. Bye. I love that notion of of a meeting every other hour. I felt like that at times. And now, through the magic of the internet and your cell phone, you could have a meeting every other hour if you wanted to, I guess. Amy wrote with a question. Hi there. I am new to Al-Anon. One meeting so far. I was referred by my therapist. I have multiple issues. Husband with drinking issues. I'm an adult child of an alcoholic. And I have a compulsive eating problem. My immediate issue is dealing slash coming to terms with my husband's drinking, but the other two are problematic and intertwined. What is your experience working multiple programs? I'm also an overdoer, so I'm trying to resist the urge to go all in and join Al-Anon, ACO, and OA at the same time. Thanks so much for your program. I enjoy hearing your experiences from three different angles. Amy from San Jose. Well, Amy, as you know, we don't give advice in this program, because what is right for me may not be right for you and vice versa. I have sponsored people who are in at least two programs, typically AA and Al-Anon. And I was advised by my sponsor the first time one of these double winners asked me to be their sponsor. My sponsor said, okay, the thing that you need to remember is that AA is their primary program. I've also heard that from from other friends who are in more than one program that, you know, depending where they are in their life, that maybe one or the other of the programs is more important to them at that moment, and that they will focus on on the one that most needs their needs at that time. I guess that's what I would say, is really consider 
you know, what the, what the most important problem is, the most pressing problem is, issue is in your life right now. And probably focus on that one. Also would note that as some other listeners have pointed out, the al program does have literature and sometimes meetings that focus on issues of adult children of alcoholics. The book From Survival to Recovery, I think, is is a primary resource in Al-Anon, and also the Daily Reader, Hope for Today. Both of those are more focused at adult children of alcoholics. That said, I do have friends, and in fact, was just asked to be a temporary sponsor by somebody who attends both meetings. As you note, the risk of overdoing is definitely there, something that that you need to be, I guess, for yourself cognizant of um, by your own admission. Okay, I, I probably said too much and not enough, so I guess I'll stop now. Welcome to Al-Anon, and uh, I hope you find here the help you need. Thank you for listening, and please keep coming back. Whatever your problems, there are those among us who have had them too. If we did not talk about a problem you are facing today, feel free to contact us so we can talk about it in a future episode. May understanding, love, and peace grow in you one day at a time.